Hello, welcome to the Nick Huber Show and the Fort by Chris Powers. We're here to have some fun trying this out for the first time. Um, if you don't know anything about Chris, he owns uh, Fort Capital LLP in Dallas, Fort Worth, where they focus on industrial and a couple other asset classes, but mainly a real estate private equity company built around industrial. Um, he is a mentor of mine. I look up to him in a major way. Um, he has a team built, as I said in the promo, that can that can buy $150 million a year of real estate. Um, he's still actively involved in the business, but he's really where I want to be 10 years from now. And that if he wanted to step out, he could. If he wants to step in, grow the business, he can. Chris, welcome. I'm excited to pick your brain and uh, share, give you an opportunity to share some of the things that you've learned along the way. Nick, thank you for having me and for setting this up. Um, I love talking about this stuff. And thank you to everybody that's uh, that's joined us today. I think we're in for a, a cool episode. And um, yeah, really passionate about this stuff. And um, Nick, thank you for everything. Uh, it's been great to get to know you over the last year, year and a half. Um, I've learned as much from you as maybe you've learned from me. It's a crazy thing about this. Learning in public is pretty fun. And um, yeah, just keep in mind, me and Chris are just two dudes. Um, I'm a lot newer in this journey than Chris is, but um, don't take any of this as investment advice or anything along those lines. But Chris, start from the beginning, man. Let's let's briefly go. You went to uh, Texas Christian, right? TCU? Yep. So how'd, how'd, you get, how'd you get going in this game? Yeah. Born and raised El Paso, Texas. Um, I, uh, my dad was a lawyer. And when he was a lawyer for 13 years, I always tell this story to kind of start. Um, he decided um, after 13 years that he wanted to be a doctor. And so when I was seven years old, he came in and he told my mom, I want to go be a doctor. And he quit being a lawyer. He was a partner at a law firm, um, went back to undergrad and finished his biology degree. And when we were seven, we moved to Lubbock, Texas, so that he could start medical school. And for those listening that have that know anything about medical school, uh, you make absolutely zero dollars uh, as a med student. And then he was a resident for four years and you make very little um, even as a resident. And so I say that really to say that I had an eight-year period where I was very aware of what we lived like when we were uh, when he was a lawyer, and then what we lived like for the next eighteen or next eight years, um, you know, taking on debt, living on a very small budget, uh, living up in a small house up in Lubbock, and that just really set off the entrepreneur in me. Uh, it's when I just really realized that um, I didn't want to live a life where um, you know I couldn't kind of control my own destiny. And so, fast forward, went to TCU and met a guy my freshman year had had had, had, had two businesses in high school. Uh, one, uh, maybe kind of more along your line, sweaty, um, washing cars, but I also had a golf club, uh, selling business on eBay. I'm a, I was a competitive golfer in high school. Um, and when I got TCU, I wanted, uh, to, um, do something and had a lot of friends and didn't have a ton of money and really wanted to make money to do kind of more trivial things like going on spring break and going to the bar and things like that. And I met a guy that taught me, this was in 2004, how Adam to Blake. basically, yeah, Adam Blake, our mutual friend, mm -hmm. Yep, basically taught me how to buy houses with zero money down. Um, and so I bought my first what house. What year was this, Chris? This was 2004. Bought my, okay. closed on my first house in like February of 2005. Um, I graduated high school year early. So I was 17 my fresh, all throughout my freshman been here. The world was a lot different in 04 and 05. This was obviously pre-great financial crisis or crash, whatever they call it. Um, 
and started buying houses with zero money down, uh, 3% down, 6% cash back at closing, uh, getting loans from Countrywide, which no longer exists. Um, But bought a lot of rental houses throughout college, um, started a management company, a leasing business. Uh, Even in 04 and 05, it was just really interesting. People or college students still went and drove around and uh, found their house, called a sign and leased it. I started a a kind of a crazy idea, which was rent by TCU.com. And I had all the landlords put their houses on um, a website and students started looking for their homes on a website, which even back in 05, 06, that was like this novel kind of thing. And just fast forward 16 years, I've been doing this since 2004 or five. Uh, we now have a company here in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, 25 people, real estate, private equity firm, have just under half a billion of assets under management. Uh, we've been hyper focused on buying Class B industrial across the state of Texas. Throughout that 16 years, I've done everything you could do. I think I've built townhomes, single family homes, rental properties, multifamily, land development, kind of you name it. Um, but really decided four or five years ago that we had to pick one thing, get unbelievably good at it, put all of our attention into it. And that was Class B industrial. And that's kind of what we've been focused on ever since. So, we're not a fund. We raise money on a deal by deal basis. That's by design. Uh, so you could guess you could call us a syndicator, um, and we conti- and we're going to continue that for a lot of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. And we're really singular focused right now. We are really only focused on buying uh, one asset type, and that is Class B industrial, which is denominated kind of by the vintage in which it was built, uh, the '60s to kind of the '90s. Um, so that's a little bit about me. I've got. Um, wife. I've been married for seven years. Uh, I have two beautiful girls, four-year-old and just almost a two-year-old. And I live here in Fort Worth, Texas. I love it, man. So you graduated college with how many houses that you own? How much equity? How, what would you say? I mean, this is kind of a deep question, but in net worth at you know graduating at 22, what were we looking at as far as a jumpstart into real estate? That's a good question. I had 12 houses. Um, And the way it worked back then, which is not really how it works anymore. So I was getting my first loan ever was an FHA loan. But every loan after that was um, kind of 3%, 6% cash back at closing. And really, the the interesting part, you talk about a refinance, and this is kind of where the world was and why the world, I think, melted down in 2008-9 was, you know, you had this 17-year-old guy that's walking in and getting a loan. And he's I, the first house I ever bought, I bought for $103,000. I leased it for, I think, twelve or 1300 bucks a month and went to Countrywide like 90 days later. And they put their my property through their you know, formula or whatever, and it was worth 140. And they were willing to do a cash out refinance of basically all my equity. So by the end of my freshman year, I had forty, fifty thousand dollars of cash in the bank, which at the time <laughs> I said into your freshman year? This was the end of my freshman year. I kind of looked at it as like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so you accomplished your goal of beer money and spring break then. Seriously, I I made the trip, but I I wasn't really thinking that I was taking on more debt. I I kind of thought of it as like a profit. That's just being young and naive. Um but the world was just different then. And so we just kept buying properties, um, started managing properties, leasing properties. I got my license and I just really started hustling. And the irony of it is I didn't set out to start this big real estate company or even stick with it. I always thought I'd go to Wall Street um, or go do something like that. And I graduated in 08 at the depths of the financial crisis. 
And I really didn't have a choice to go get a job, nor was it really an option. I, I had s- built so much, I couldn't just like leave it. And it, but I never was really registering that, if that makes sense. So I don't know what I was worth when I graduated, but I guess if you graduated in 08, it was, it, it moved down quite a bit. You might've been underwater technically if you tried to sell everything. The, the best thing I had was I had assets near in Texas, near a growing university, uh, which was huge. Um, I had gotten a line of credit right before the crash, a uh, revolving line of credit that allowed me to basically use kind of as cash. Um, and so I don't know what I was worth, but I was worth enough to be able to, even as a young person, borrow money when it was hard to borrow money, which I think mm-hmm. is more important than how you're worth in a, in a downturn mm-hmm. like that. Um, I had the credibility that I could get. I couldn't give, get millions and millions of dollars, but I could still borrow. And mm-hmm. that's, that's really resume when, too. anybody can borrow at the top of the market per se. I'm not saying mm-hmm. anybody, but when things are great, banks are lending. It's Banks are kind of backwards. They lend when things are really great. And then when things are not so great, when they should be lending more, that's when they don't want to lend. And so to be able to, to be uh, relevant at both ends of the cycle is really important. And that's maybe more what I think about when I think about when I was 22 is I'd at least put myself in a position to borrow. Um, yeah. So what do we, I mean, yeah, you're right. I, I got a, as a 25 year old with absolutely no idea what he was doing, I got a loan for $1.9 million to build a self-storage facility from the ground up with no plan. And I look back at my underwriting and what I did to prepare for it. It wasn't good enough. I don't know why the bank gave me the money to do that. Um, I'm sure similar back of the math, back of the napkin underwriting for your houses that you bought, but um, okay. So you graduate, the recession hits, getting a job was going to be tough. What did you do? Yeah. And, and to piggyback off that last thing you said, and anybody listening to this that hasn't gotten into real estate yet and is thinking about it, one of the things that I find most fascinating when I talk to people who are circling the arena is that they, they, they just assume they can't get a loan because mm-hmm. they've never gotten one. Why would a bank give me mm-hmm. a loan? I think people would be shocked to know, go call three community bankers in your area, tell them your story. And I would almost guarantee if they're not willing to make a loan, they'll give you a pathway to get one, but almost everybody at least can borrow something. And it's just something to kind of keep note of. 08, Mm -hmm. 09 hits. Um, I told you about that line of credit. Um, I ended up buying foreclosed properties down in South Fort Worth. I was buying homes that were selling for a hundred. I mean, this is crazy in the world, in the market we're in now, but homes that were selling for a hundred to 125,000 in 07 and even early 08, by 09, we were buying for twenty five dollars or $30,000. When the market drops, it drops. Now, there's and a lot of- still renting. People are still paying rent for, on these houses. The cash right. on cash was what? 20, 30, 40% cash on cash yield on these things? It was unbelievable. I mean, it was it was mm-hmm. crazy. And there was- Did you have to put more cash down, more collateral, or was it pretty standard? You just had a good relationship with a banker and they were like, let's go. So the line of credit I had was for a quarter million. Um, and it was from Wells Fargo and they told me I could keep it. And so we were, we had three or four homes going on at any point in time. Had I had the, had I been in the position I'm in now, um, when 09 hit, I think there's things I might've done differently, but with the resources I had, that's what we focused on. So we would buy 25 to $35,000 home. We'd put 15 to 20 grand into it and try and resell it for like 89, nine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that still offered a payment that people could either go rent an apartment or buy a house it was still, uh, we were able to sell that, you know, you're buying it for 90 fixed up when you could have bought it for 120 not fixed up even two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I didn't like about that business is 
One, uh, the tax. When you're when you're flipping homes in, in less than a year, you're paying a lot of tax. Two, in a really big downturn, especially to the demographic that we were selling to, they were having a tough time still getting uh, new loans to buy homes. Had mm-hmm. I just maybe flip, uh, owned those homes and rented them for a couple of years and tried to sell them two or three years out, financially, we would have done a lot better. But at that point, we were just trying to churn and churn and churn. And through that whole uh, process, I met a builder and he taught me how to start building and developing. And we went back to TCU and started building student housing. And then I, I pivoted from buying kind of foreclosed homes to I started building million dollar spec homes um, in some of the nicer neighborhoods. And our thesis at the time was all these nice homes uh, were selling at called 180 to 200 bucks a foot. And they were older. They were from the 50s, but they were in really nice neighborhoods. At that time, costs had gotten so cheap, we could build a brand new product, deliver it between 180 and 200. And it gave buyers in the market, you know, do I want to buy something from the 50s or something brand new? And I did that for two years. I think I built 30 or 40 kind of homes and then built, a, I built, I don't know, five or 600 bedrooms at TCU, uh, student rental. This is, just, this is just you and a couple employees on mm-hmm. this thing? I think there was, uh, it was, we were called Powers and Curtis at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I had met the builder. And I think there was four of us. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you was, were managing the construction jobs or were you raising the money and letting him do all that? I was raising all the money and we were still doing all the construction in-house, which we don't do construction anymore for lots of reasons. Um, mm-hmm. But at the time, yeah, we were we were doing everything in-house and we were kind of a local developer uh, just here in Fort Worth, focused more in the residential sector. Um, so you were, before I let you go any further, you were... I got to get a prediction out of you that I'm not going to hold you to, but you were getting loans when it was the easiest time in history to get loans. They were given 17 year olds loans. Real estate was booming. A lot of people are comparing now to that. Do you think that we are in the verge of something going to go wrong here and that, you know, a lot of people are going to have some bad debt and the real estate market's going to correct? Or do you think that it's up, up and away from here? What do, what's your opinion comparing, comparing the last three years to four, five, six, seven, when you guys were cranking along to 17, 18, 19, 20? The difference in this cycle, even though we're at the, you know, it's kind of a frothy market and and we've been going up for a long time, bankers have stuck to standards. So 0506, like I, I don't think you could be a 17-year-old with no credit or money and walk in and get a loan right now. Like I think they mm-hmm. have done a better job. Even right now, we're we're still putting 30 to 40% of equity down when we get a loan. Mm-hmm. So that has fundamentally shifted. Um, now, yes, there, it's, you can go over lever yourself and find people that'll give you expensive money or hot money or private money for sure. Um, but generally speaking, banks have handled this situation differently. Uh, two, if you just kind of look at like the the complexity of um, developing and construction over the last kind of 15 years as the, as the rise of social media has happened, we're not building product as fast as we used to. And so I think mm-hmm. we're way undersupplied. Um, I think yeah, the developers were going nuts in they, seven, six, seven, eight. They were. And now yeah. with social media and all these things, it's so much harder to get a development approved. I mean, even in the short time I've been doing it, things that used to take us six months at the city to get approved can take up to a year and a half, two years now. Mm-hmm. And then you you throw in like what's recently happened with lumber, where lumber's up almost 200 and something percent. Projects are stalling. You have interest rates at all-time lows, where I think there might be some discrepancy 
um, in the next cycle is I think COVID, and this was kind of happening before COVID, I think there will be geographic regions that get hit harder than just everything Mm -hmm. as a whole. The last downturn was real estate led. I don't think the next downturn will be a real estate led type of thing. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, Developers are just taking too much risk right now. I don't know how it makes any sense to develop. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Um, the cities are putting them through the ringer. Their expenses are crazy. You have 20 levers that could be pulled to put you underwater. Um, the big developers the at this point in the cycle have basically become manufacturers where I don't think they're as concerned about the promote and the upside as they are about the fees. And it doesn't mean they don't want to create profit and do well, but they don't mind at this time of the cycle. They've gotten fat over the last 12 years. But when you run mm-hmm. a development company, you got to keep the pipeline full. There is no like, let's not build something for three or four years. At the same time, let's not let somebody go. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, and this is something we saw five, six years ago, and why I really didn't want to bet the whole company on just being a development company, is at times like this in the market, they're more doing it for fees. There's a boatload of capital that's trying to get into the market. And I think the thing that, that I've learned the most of over time is, look, if you're a huge developer and your equity is a nonprofit or a huge pension fund or somebody that doesn't pay taxes that wants to hold this stuff for 15, 20 years, you're just underwriting things totally different than, Nick, the way you and I think about things. Our cost of capital is higher. Our investor motivations are different. But once you mm-hmm. get to a certain level and you're really building the big stuff and things that are changing cities... It's a totally different investor profile. It's a totally different type of developer. And, um, you know, you're right. It is, there is more risk. Um, you know, commodity costs are going up. Land prices are going up. There's a ton more development risk just in getting things approved. I mean, you've heard of kind of this nimbyism. I think it's nimbyism concept. It's a, it's a cartel, period. Yeah. I mean, the people, who, the people who are limiting the supply of new housing and new development are the owners of land in that town. So if you own a, if you own a, piece of property in a town, what's in your best interest? To stifle new development so that the supply goes down and demand goes up and your property gets more valuable. For sure. So it's Everybody it's, agrees we need affordable housing or we need a hotel or we need some, just not in my neighborhood. We agree we need it, but it needs to be in your neighborhood. And when you play that game and the government can't step in and almost say like, nope, it's coming and we have to accept it. That's where you see these major metro cities with millions of people where the wealth gap starts growing tremendously is because you can't build this stuff anymore. And, and if you the, everybody agrees we need it, just not where I live. And um, mm-hmm. that doesn't work forever. And it's really interesting mm-hmm. kind of concept. Um, you know, I don't think we're new to it, but it's very uh, kind of polarizing at the moment. And you can just kind of see it. These massive cities right now you have cities where you have people buying $100 million condos and at the other end, they have the biggest homeless population in the country. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, and a lot of it has to do with um, housing stock. And I think everybody agrees it needs to be there. Uh, it's just not where I live. Yep. So you get done with this. 2014 or so is when you shifted from the development of these homes. What I, I want to I take a step of like, okay, where's Chris at now as far as how much capital he has behind him, ready to take the next step. And then I want to talk about how you put that, put your next deals together, who, who financed you, how, but tell us where you were when you, when you realized, Hey, developing is getting harder. It's getting more risky. Why don't we get our hands on some of this supply that's here right now that we can operate and hold it and buy it for below replacement cost 
Um, when did when did you make that shift, and where were you financially when you were ready to take on something bigger? Yeah, so I have a ton of developer friends, and I developed for ten years, and I'm not poo pooing on developing. It's a it's just a different game. And I think I read something by Sam Zell, I don't know, a while ago. And I kind of had these gut intuitions when I was developing the things that kept me up at night were things I couldn't control, like mm-hmm. the zoning commission meeting, like the price of lumber. You know, when you budget for a development, you might be doing the plans in the budget a year before you're actually building. Well, if you had done that right now with where lumber is, you budgeted lumber 250% less. Well, if a home, if, of a home is lumber, you can't build the home, especially if Mm -hmm. you're building it for profit, maybe if it's a custom. So I just started realizing like all the things that kept me up at night in development were things out of my control. And then there's the other end of it too, what somebody's going to pay you for your property. For sure. For (laughs) sure. That's a huge lever. I mean, developments now are taking three to four years, kind of full cycle, some five and six. And you go to New York City and LA and some of these really big markets, these things might be 10 years in the making. I mean, honestly, And so Mm -hmm. then I read something by Sam Zell where he was just like, look, real estate's pretty easy. What are you paying for it? And can you lease it for that? And Mm -hmm. and at what point can the lease rate fall before you're underwater? And if those are really the only things you're thinking about, now there's a little nuance to that. There's more than just that. But he just said, why would you ever develop something when you can close the day of, know what you paid for it and know what you have to lease it for as opposed to this guess now, don't get me wrong. Development can can be super profitable. There could be huge tailwinds where, you know, five years from now, you expect the rents to be at two bucks and they're at three bucks by then. That's a mm-hmm, huge winner. Mm-hmm. But those are out of your control. So you're playing a game where you're using data and you're guessing, but there's just a lot that can go wrong. And, you know, develop, uh, developer returns should incorporate that. That's why you typically see them as higher. Now we're, at, now we're in 2021. The market's been running for 12 years. You can make an argument that they're there or they're not there. Um, I just think it's a better life for me and my personality to kind of have more um, confidence in the day I close on something of what I'm getting into than kind of this huge wager on the future. Um, Okay. So uh, your question was kind of when did we start realizing that? Um, You know, I've just done enough development. I've, I've developed so many things and I just kept, you know, I'm just built more for for maybe speed and growth. And at the same time, I also saw a lot of my developer buddies in 09, 10, 11, they went from 200-person companies to five-person companies like almost overnight. When development mm-hmm. stops, it stops. And it usually is mm-hmm. like a 12 to 18-month recovery. Mm-hmm. And I just said like, how can you build a company that you know every seven years unless you've reached some certain level where you have a huge portfolio or you offer other services, which most small businesses don't, that we build this whole company for seven years and then have to basically kill it all when the market tanks. That didn't make sense to me either. And so mm-hmm. as much of it was personality-driven and philosophy-driven as it was just trying to create a better return. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't so know if I answered your question. To- yeah. So tell tell me how you what what was next? What kind of, what kind of deal did you put together? How much of your own cash did you have at your disposal? How did you go raise some money for your first acquisitions then? And and was it industrial real estate at this time? No. So first deal I ever raised money on uh, was in '09. Uh, raised a half a million bucks to facilitate and continuing to buy foreclosure foreclosed properties. Adam taught me how to raise capital. Again, throughout college, I didn't have to raise anybody else's money. You could just do zero down loans and refinance them and just keep rolling your cash. But um, 
I tell everybody I got an MBA, which is something totally different than what I'm doing now in industrial. But my MBA, I didn't go actually get one at a school, was I assembled a bunch of land in 2011 and ended up selling it. Uh, I entitled it, bought it all unentitled, entitled it. Um, and I say these figures not to you know pump my own chest, but just to kind of paint a picture as to what it did to my career and just kind of how I changed thinking about things. But we assembled a bunch of land, entitled it, and sold it to a big multifamily institutional developer. And I think we, we were all in the land for 12 bucks, and 18 months later, we sold it for 48 bucks a foot. Now, what I learned there was the whole time I was like, man, I can't believe this institution's paying me this much. Like, there's no way they're going to make money on this. And by entitled it, just for the rookies, you found a piece of property that was bare and you got it permitted and ready to build a multifamily development? Yeah. So entitlements are basically in the in the most simple form, what you're allowed to do on the land. Yep. So, Rezoned maybe? Yeah. Zoning, the setbacks, how dense you can make it, sometimes what it has to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we bought, uh, it was like 32 residential single family lots and we re-entitled them to build a 400 unit multifamily deal. And that took 18 months meeting with neighborhoods, getting city approvals. You know, you think about 32 single family homes. Well, they only have enough plumbing or um, uh, sewage and water mm-hmm. capacity for 32 homes. You got to upgrade that to 400. So there's just mm-hmm. a lot that goes in. And I remember thinking, well, I can't believe they're paying me this. They ended up going on to make, I think, 15 or $20 million when they ended up got done selling it. But that's when I started realizing, oh my gosh, when you uh, sell things to big institutions, they have a whole different mindset. They have different costs of capital. They have different time horizons. They have different fee structures. It's just a different game. So that was like, number one, I wanted to get in a game where I was eventually maybe um, being able to sell or exit to somebody much larger than us. That was important to Mm -hmm. me. I got to see 18 months of entitling 32 single family homes into uh, four. It was, I mean, talk about staying up at night and sitting through these city meetings and just a million things could go wrong. Um, you guys made some investments too there. I'm sure yeah. you had some cash on the line. We did. Um, and I just said, man, I, I just never got fully comfortable. We'd, we, we developed smaller projects, but that was kind of my MBA. Buying a bunch of land, we raised a million seven. Um, we, we knew that entitlements mattered. I didn't know to that degree, but it taught me what big companies do. I became really good friends with the partners and the managing directors. So I got to see how they thought. And it's not just an land entitlement that you can have those thoughts. It was more just how do big boys think about things? And by big boys, I just kind of mean the billion dollar companies that have stuff kind of nationally or globally. And realize there's just this huge opportunity to buy things as a small to middle market company, but exit to big, but to big people. Um, and there's a lot of arbitrage. There's more upside to be made there. And um, so, so this then is we, where I want to. This is where I want to ask you something real quick. Some, yeah. some advice. So you're starting to shift my mind. This is kind of a cheat question because I asked you it what a week ago on the phone. But I. I do this big talk online about how I'd never want to sell this real estate portfolio. And I got all these self-storage units in all these towns. We're buying them, you know, at seven caps, eight caps, nine caps. We're turning them into 10 caps. They're cash flowing really well. And I'm saying, Chris, why would I ever sell this? Why would I ever sell this? Why would I not? And I want you to answer it now. Why would I not just build this portfolio up? I'm several years behind you. My net worth is well under $5 million still on paper if I had to liquidate everything. Growing fast, doing more deals every 
every year. You're probably going to buy $50 million of self-storage this year. And I said, Chris, why would I sell it? Why would I not just build up a business where I can cash flow $1 million, $2 million a year and operate all these self-storage facilities everywhere? But then you started talking a little bit about this bigger player and how these exits can really supercharge your career. So I want you to talk a little bit more about that and what advice you would give me. Yeah. Look, some of it has to or do for with anybody. Say, say somebody on here is going around buying up RV, you know, RV parks or mobile home parks or funeral uh, homes or any, any of these niche asset classes that they're buying them for one, $2 million here, there. But then you look next thing you do, you wake up a couple of years later and you got $50 million or a hundred million dollars worth of real estate. What are some of the things that you can do there? Yeah, I think some of it depends on what situation are you in in life. And then some of it depends on, you know, what's your company. And we are a manufacturer of returns. We deploy capital, we, we improve buildings, and we provide returns to investors. The, the time horizon in which that takes place is on a deal-by-deal basis. Um, but there's something to be said about a track record. And this is something that's like, I don't fully agree with it, but I understand it and I respect it because I've seen it happen to me. If you own a deal that you bought for 25 million bucks and it's, let's just say it's worth 50, mm-hmm. the market will not give you as much credit for going to the market saying, hey, I bought this for, real estate's different than stocks, right? You can tell a stock at any second of the day. You but have it, liquidity, yep. Nick, if you bought something for 25 and you went and told everybody in the country, like it's worth 50 million now, most people are going to say, did you sell it? <laughs> no. Yeah, I could I could pull up my portfolio analytics and I would have 13 self-storage facilities there and I got 31 million in basis and I would say, Chris, this is worth 51 million. That's what I would do right now to you. And a lot of people, and I don't, again, this is where I don't necessarily agree with it, but it just is kind of the way of the world would say, well, your IRR, your multiple doesn't count until it's until you've gone, they call it full cycle on a deal. What I can tell you is, uh, and we'll talk about the sale we had last year, I didn't buy into that as much until we sold something big and posted a return, a skin on the wall. It changed a lot of things for our company. We got so much attention. It, it was this validation, not that we were looking for validation or frankly even needed it, but the last six months since we sold have been totally different than anything we've ever experienced. And I remember a lot of people telling me, you know, once you sell, you know, you'll, you'll be more known in the market. When you take a big deal to market, hundreds of buyers across the country are seeing it. Hundreds of brokers are seeing it. Capital market people are seeing it. One, it's just marketing on your company, but posting the return mattered. Second is, um, look, if you're old and um, you're, you're looking to retire and, and, and real estate's not your full-time job, yeah, maybe you do own something forever. And I'm not saying there are things that I won't want to own forever, but the majority of assets are not these, you know, you're not owning the corner of Fifth Avenue and Broadway in New York every time you buy. Those are the things you generationally go like, man, we just can never let this go. But I would tell you, especially as you're young, if you can create liquidity, is is the money growing as quickly in your asset as you could if you sold it 1031, even if you took the money and paid taxes? Um, you know, Nick, if, if I gave you 10 million, if, if you said, yeah, my properties are worth 10 million bucks right now, or I have 10 million in equity in them, um, and I'd say that's great. Um, can you grow that quicker by selling all those and going and reinvesting that 10 million in a new set of assets that have room to grow? Or do, do the current assets you have have the same growth trajectory as something that you would go do with that 10 million if you had it? 
the answer to that for me is clear that I, I could I could get a better yield by turning it into 10 million and going out and buying more exactly caps right and caps and, and rolling them together. Now, when you're a billionaire one day, and I know you'll you'll be that one day, you might not <laughs> look, you're not going to look at life like that. It's no longer about that. Now it's about preserving wealth and doing all these things. But I think early in a career. And look, I've been fortunate to be around a lot of very successful people and people that have made a lot of money. They all sell. They all have created that first big liquidity event. Even, you know, we get so uh, enamored with Warren Buffett eating peanut brittle up in Omaha, sitting on his ass, never selling anything. Well, that's bullshit. He's sold a lot of things. Um, And as you're younger, and he did them especially when he was younger, if you um, have an opportunity to create a lot of liquidity, and some people might say, well, why don't you just refinance and why do you sell? And what I would tell you is, well, one, you're taking on more debt, more risk. But two, you might not have investors that are that want to do that. Sometimes it's not about you. If if it's not all your capital, it's it's maybe what the investor wants. Um, or team members, right? If you got some employees that have it was a life changing amount of money from an employee standpoint, it's on your team. It's cut into the promote. And we talk about depreciation. Like everybody talks about depreciation, like it's this god gift that we were given. But buildings depreciate, like they become mm-hmm. shittier over time. Mm-hmm. Weather hits mm-hmm. them, people spray paint them, you know, the foundation cracks, the roof gets old. So you eventually have to deploy a lot more capital back into the property. And at that point, it's another reason to ask yourself, am I better off deploying more capital to fixing up this building? Or is that capital better served deploying it into a brand new kind of investment thesis or asset um, that I want? And so you know, a lot of the generational real estate holders tend to be families or large people that are not looking to eventually kind of capture that first upside or don't need a track record. They don't need to multiply the money. They need to just keep it growing at 10%. But as you continue to raise more money and meet savvier people, um, and I think every LP asks me this, I'm sure they, what is your track record? Well, what I have found is it's met with resistance a lot of times when you say, here's all these great assets. This is what we could sell them for today, but we haven't really done that. And I know it sounds like, damn it, why do you have to sell it to, to mm-hmm. post the skin on the wall? But it's just kind of how the world works right now. I think mm-hmm. that's changing um, as the world starved for yield and there's not places to put things, but I don't know, So man. when does the invest? When does the institutional capital come in the picture? Talk to me. Talk to me, Chris. I have, I have $50 million for the storage right now that I bought for 30 we're going to buy 50 million this year and hopefully 50 or 75 next year. When is the right time for me to list this portfolio? So the, uh, so I've mentioned this a couple times. One, most institutional capital, and when I say institutional, don't want to deploy less than like call it 10 to 15 to 20 million dollars into a deal. The truth of the matter is that is starting to go down because what happens is the bigger assets get so priced out. And so people are starting to go further downstream. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we talked about this last week. KKR right now, every don't, when you're selling to an institution or you're thinking about selling to somebody, don't think that they're borrowing at the same rate that you're borrowing at. I think we talked about this Mm -hmm. the other day. My terms are 3.25%, 25 year AM. I got principal and interest. You know, I got it's going to cost me 6% of the loan amount every year to service the debt. And I don't know this because I talked to someone at KKR and this is, take this with a fax. This is me just being in the market and talking to who I talked to. But if you, you're borrowing at three and a quarter and somebody can come buy your stuff and they're borrowing at a dollar seventy-five, one point seven five 1.75%, they can pay you a lot more. There's an arbitrage there. 
a, f- a four and a half cap yields for them. They can make money on a four and a half cap. There's a lot of synergies. And so the thing that we've done and what I would tell you is once you can sell something, call it 30 million kind of at the minimum, but once you get into that $50 million range, you start really hitting a sweet spot for people. 50 to call it a $100 million portfolio size, you're, 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 you are gaining more value as your portfolio hits those numbers. Above 100 million, I don't think you're accretively adding like more uh, cap rate compression or anything else, but 50 to 100 million. So you're going and doing all the hard work. You're buying the eight you know, individual properties that an institution would never do. You're saying, look, I'm going to go do all this. Shit, try 20, 25 individual buildings. Yeah. They're not going to go do that. Mm-hmm. Hell no. But they'll mm-hmm. come to you and go, we would love to own those assets. We just have to buy them all at once. And we're willing to pay mm-hmm. you a premium since you're kind of getting the sweat equity of having put it all together. And so mm-hmm. when's the right time? One, you know, what are your financial goals? Like you might mm-hmm. say, look, I want to, I don't ever want to move out of my house. My kids are going to go to public school. I don't even care if they go to college. Like, okay, maybe never sell them. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of that is what are your goals? And mm-hmm. your goals. What if you might- don't know what the hell your goals are, Chris? What the hell are we all doing here? I mean, I'm just trying to have fun every day, right? Build, uh, build good relationships with good people and create memories. But how much money do you need to make that happen? Do I? I I've said, I've said, I like, I don't have a desire to be a billionaire. Maybe that's changing if 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 it becomes a realistic thing. But why do you have the desire to? generate massive amounts of wealth? And and is it because that's when you get to make your mark on the world and positively influence people? Or what are what are your goals? Tell me about what, what should a guy like me, 31 years old, be shooting for and why? Yeah, I ask myself that question every day. I think it's changed over time. I don't think, you know, when I was younger, I think it was different. I don't think if you look at the majority of the billionaires in the world today, they wanted to be billionaires. They were just passionate about something and a billion dollars showed up along the way. Steve Jobs didn't start Apple to make a billion dollars. He was a mm-hmm. freak of nature and loved computers and that's what happened. Elon Musk is not so wrapped up in making a billion dollars. He's trying to save the world. Some people believe that, some don't. But you go on and on. I think people that actually want to make a billion dollars are the ones that never make it because mm-hmm. people can sniff that out you know, really um, quickly. For me, um, one, I think it's how I'm wired. I don't think everybody's wired that way. I think money at some point just is, the more of it becomes more actually a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, it it does give you the ability to one, help others. Um, It -hmm. gives you the ability to uh, have more freedom. Um, It gives you the ability to you know, sleep a little bit better at night, not having to worry about certain things. But look, I get distracted all the time. I think any entrepreneur, anybody in business that tells you that they don't get wrapped up in it is is absolutely lying. Um, mm-hmm. It's being able to kind of self-check yourself. And I'll tell you what, having two little girls, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, that self-checks yourself. Mm-hmm. Do I need an extra X amount of dollars and potentially sacrifice watching, you know, coaching my kids' soccer team or something. It's an opportunity trap, man. I mean, I've seen my entire world change over the past year. You've seen your world change a hell of a lot over the past year too. And now all of a sudden, every hour that we do something fun instead of something profitable could be hundreds of thousands of dollars five years from now, 10 years from now, just because of the opportunity that sits before us. How do you not... How the hell can you have fun when the opportunity costs is that high? And how do you, how do you, 
and I'm not addicted to work, right? I, I still, I feel like I can add a hell of a lot of value in five hours focused, but you know, I guess I don't have anywhere that I'm going with this question, but it's, it's a tough thing to live with when you realize that, Hey, the world is opening up. You have all these opportunities where you can invest, spend your time, make gobs of money. Um, so it all, you turn it off. the biggest thing I think about all the time and, and like I, I fail at this daily, nobody's happy unless they're content. And I'll tell you who like usually is the least content are really rich people. Mm-hmm. So-and-so has a bigger plane or a bigger house or so-and-so's kid got in here or, you know, so-and-so, you know, uh, business sold for a hundred, like it's a lot easier to be not content when you have a lot more things. And I see this kind of all the time. Then you, then there's the other um, frame of the conversation, which is, do you work too much or do you work too little? Mm-hmm. I think that's a bullshit way to think about your life. If you love what you're doing, then do it. If you mm-hmm. love working mm-hmm. 80 hours a week, do it. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's causing you to not see your wife and not see your kids and you're not you know, anywhere it, uh, um, deep in your faith and those things are important to you, um, then maybe don't work 80 hours a week. But mm-hmm. do whatever the hell you want to do that makes you happy. And to be happy, you have to be content. And so, yeah, w- like on Twitter, we always joke about, will people be back in the office or not? I personally... Like it cripples me to think of not being in the office all the time. I love being in the environment, but some people mm-hmm. might not like that. They're not mm-hmm. right, and I'm not wrong, and I'm not right, and they're not wrong. I think mm-hmm. today in like society and on social media and everything, everybody's trying to give a prescription for like what to do. And what I would tell you is do what makes you happy, but you won't be happy unless you're content. Mm-hmm. And the more you accumulate and do things, that's where I struggle like all the time. It's very easy to never be content. You mm-hmm. know, if, if if making money was the true goal, Bill Gates would have stopped a long time ago. Warren Buffett mm-hmm. would have, like, they're not doing it for the money. They just love mm-hmm. what the hell they do. And it just so happens that they do something that generates a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But I would tell you, I know a lot of very wealthy people. I know a lot of people that have no wealth. And I would almost argue that the people with no wealth are way happier than the people with wealth. Um, mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. true. Uh, mm-hmm. I I think about it as how much shit could go wrong in a day to day world, and you know, people that have lots of money and resources also have lots of things that can go wrong. I mean, the song "Mo Money, Mo Problems." It actually is true. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't yeah, mean you can't be happy now. and have money. It just means. Um, you got to do what's right for you. And there is no silver bullet. I enjoy making money because it provides a chance for more freedom. I can do more things. Um, I can help a lot of other people. And that's as you know, you had a question on what you what, where I want to start spending more of my time as I go forward. I don't look at the next 50 years as how can I work 20 hours more a week, I do start, I'm, I'm not too old yet, but I think about things and how can I just have maybe a bigger impact on the people around me? That's why I do the podcast mm-hmm. and, and other things. That's exciting mm-hmm. to me. And it's mm-hmm. not necessarily always easy to do. Mm-hmm. How old are you, Chris? I'm 34. 34. And you told me that you tithe 10%, not necessarily all to a church, but you give you give a lot of money away. How do you get comfortable with that? That's another thing that I struggle with hard is, okay, now I have a little bit of resources. How do you get comfortable giving money away? That's it's. Yeah, maybe it's my scarcity mindset growing up. I'm not, it's not, it it hasn't been easy. Um, 
I put you on the spot with that one. You said you're an open book. Sorry. I, yeah, I no, I, it, it, it's <laughs> not, it's not easy, but you know, at the same time, um, it's gotta be look, fun though. At right? the when end you, of the day, you you're going to die and you're not going to take any of that stuff with you to wherever you believe you're going. Like you're mm-hmm. just not. And most people aren't going to give a shit about anything you did in your life. Like your family will remember you, maybe a few more people, but mm-hmm. once you're gone, like you, life moves on. People move on really, really quickly. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you take just an example of like, I don't know, the Kobe Bryant thing that happened last year. For like mm-hmm. two or three days, it was like, oh my gosh, we lost Mamba. And to this mm-hmm. day, I'm still sad that we lost Mamba. But mm-hmm. then the next thing came up. And that's a big example of something that happened, but we kind of move on. And so one, I think it's just like a moral thing that we we are provided an opportunity um, and like to which much is, uh, given or whatever much is expected. However, they, they talk about that or whatever the quote is, but, and it, and look, it's easier to give when you have resources to give, but it doesn't have to be money. It can be time, um, knowledge. Um, and I think about the podcast as much mm-hmm. as about giving as I do anything else I do in my life. Um, it's not mm-hmm. just the money side of it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. And I would just tell you this. If I give you a dollar, I feel way better in the situation than you do in receiving it. We feel better mm-hmm. when we give. We, we, mm-hmm. feel, we don't feel as much when we take. It's why giving a gift, you get excited to give your wife a gift or you get all giddy. Mm-hmm. Um, or when you help somebody that is struggling. It sounds selfish, but you get more out of it to help the person that's struggling than the person receiving it actually does mm-hmm. out of it. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's just how I, I was it. raised. No, I love it. I love it. Okay, let's talk about your big deal, man. So you, April, I guess, when was it that you almost sold and then COVID hit and it stopped? I want to I hear the, the details of your, of your recent big event. So I've been, you just mentioned COVID. I think it's easy for entrepreneurs to put up this like big puffy chest and everything is great and we're all confident. Being mm-hmm. an entrepreneur is scary as hell sometimes. And I will tell you that when COVID hit, I was, I've never been more scared in my life. I mean, there's people I've apologized to, um, not because I did anything mean or wrong. I just, I was so, uh, there, when I was reading headlines that, that we're not going to pay rent, um, I thought for moments, like I've spent my whole life building this and it's all going to be gone and taken away. It's like mm-hmm. my, my kids weren't going to be taken away from me. My wife wasn't going to be taken away from me. My family wasn't, but the thought of the business leaving was just this crazy thing. And so you mentioned COVID. I just think it was an important place to start with. Um, if you're listening to this or you're an entrepreneur and you feel lonely and you feel like nobody, like you're the only person that's insecure, welcome to the club. Like every entrepreneur mm-hmm. is insecure. And if they don't admit it, they're lying. I've, I've met mm-hmm. a thousand of them and all of them mm-hmm. have weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So uh, April hits. Um, this is kind of how this is probably why I was so like, it was crazy. We took a deal out in November of 2019. It was touted as going to be this great industrial portfolio, first of its kind in the market, an aggregation of class B, not first of its kind, but um, it hadn't happened in a while. Brokers had come to us with this idea. And you were going to group several of your properties together and yeah, sell them. Yeah, we grouped. Mm-hmm. We bought seven individual deals. We were going to group them all up and then sell them as one big portfolio. Mm-hmm. We take the deal out in December. 
through January. We're having record amounts of tours and people in the data room. And by room. taking the deal out, you mean you're going to market. Yes. People, the shoppers are here. So when you think about... Um, a lot of people think about selling real estate as, oh, there's a sign in the yard that says for sale and there's a listing online that says for sale. Um, and, and that's certainly how a lot of real estate sold. But when you start selling kind of on a larger, grander scale to institutions, what happens is when they take it to market is like they create um, a market. They create a data room. People are coming in and looking at all the data. There's a certain date where that you can do a call for offers where everybody must submit their offer. It's basically an auction, like a bid almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we had record tours. We had record people in the data room. I remember going through the data room and seeing names in there that I was like, oh my gosh, I've been reading about these companies since I was a kid. Um, we had, you know, I think 12 or 14 offers come in at call for offers. Then you do kind of a highest and best situation where you get down to your final four. And it was a frenzy leading up to the final four. That was say it was going well. Everybody wanted to buy your property and you're and you start looking at the numbers and you're like, holy shit, I'm about to make some money. That was March 7th that mm-hmm. the final four were selected. And the next week is what they do. They call buyer calls where the seller gets on the phone. Yep. You get on the phone with the buyer. Who are you? Where's your capital? How did you underwrite the deal? What were your assumptions? Just to make basically vetting them, making sure that if you own a contract with them, they're going to close. Yep. Mm -hmm. And look, when a lot of people are looking at it, everybody can underwrite the deal differently. So you want to know in in coming to this number, how did you, how much did you leave in CapEx? How much did you, you know, what were your rent growth rates? All these things. So anyway, that call was going to be the next week. Well, COVID hit like the 12th or the 13th. Um, and I think calls started on like the 14th or the 15th. So after three months of everything being crazy hot, two people didn't even take the call. Mm-hmm. One person got on and said, if you award us the deal, we're not going to do anything for 90 days. And one group said, this stuff happens all the time and you know we're going to move forward. So you kind of go into it like you end February going, you know, everything's aligning really well. This is this is really happening. And like two weeks later, it's all gone away. Like when things and you're get, not only you're not only worried about not closing this deal, you're worried about your entire business imploding. I, I was listening to your podcast episodes, Chris, and your voice. I could tell that something you weren't talking about this. You weren't talking about any of this stuff, but I could tell like, holy cow, this is there's fear in this man's voice. Your voice was trembling. Yeah, dude. It was emotional. When you're in real estate, you have debt. You have mm-hmm. you have lots of things. And, and let, let me start talking about me for a second. I have 25 people that I, that I work with that depend on Fort Capital to succeed, not just for them, but their families and their kids. And that's part of the entrepreneurship journey is if you care about your people, the weight and the burden of having to let them down that was actually driving me more than what I could potentially lose as an individual. That's a that's just another layer that people don't think about. And when people, you walk in the office and everybody's looking at you, correct? Everybody's like, what what are, what are we doing, boss? Uh, are and we when gonna, are we okay? when times are really good, it's easy to look at the owner and say, like, man, he makes more money, or man, things are good for him. But it's when things are not good that I don't think people fully understand the amount of risk that can be on the table. And look, 
industrial real estate ended up working out last year, but there's a lot of things that didn't work out. And my heart bleeds for those people. They did. Mm-hmm. There was nothing. somebody about to sell us. Uh, there was somebody about to sell a massive hotel portfolio in there. They're done. Everything. Retail, mm-hmm. whatever, not even within reals. Mm-hmm. I mean, and my heart bleeds from they did nothing wrong. They didn't create this virus. They didn't want to let their people go. They didn't want to quarantine. They didn't want to do these things, but that's how the world works. And so I was just in this really weird position where you end February with like this record, like we are going to set a record when we sell this thing to two weeks later, like people aren't even showing up for calls. Even the ones that do or have lost like all enthusiasm. It happened so quick. And then the week later, you know, you start reading, don't pay your landlord, don't pay your landlord. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, oh my gosh, are we even on earth right now? And then you're managing people. And, you know, I told my team, I said, look, there's a lot of great decisions I'm going to make over the next year. And there's some terrible ones. And we won't know until we get down the road. Hindsight will be 2020. And the people on my team, if they're listening to this, they know some of the things that maybe I regret doing. But I told him, I said, I'm going to make decisions with as quickly as information's coming to me. And we'll just have to decide later on. But I also reminded him, is like, the world doesn't need any more critics. It's super easy to be a critic. Like, mm-hmm. it's easy to point back at what we did yesterday and poke fun at it or what somebody might have done. It's like, you're not adding any value into the world as, as mm-hmm. a critic. And I just reminded the team, is like, we'll do things wrong. Um I'll do things wrong, but like show a little empathy and grace and it kind of worked out. And um, there are so many people who are so good at calling the world ending and the bears and the negativity and everybody who thinks this is going to crash and that's going to crash. Pessimists sound smart. Optimists make money. Yeah. Nobody ever got rich being a pessimist, period. Like they all point to that guy, that still kind of crazy guy that is calling for a huge crash now that called the great housing crisis and had a big bet. They made a movie about him. Um, there's a couple examples of some how some rich people got richer by being bears, but nobody nobody ever got wealthy doing that ever. No, if you want to make money over a long horizon, it pays to be an optimist. Mm-hmm. You can okay. make mo- you can make I a interrupted you. Yeah, you can make a lot of money as a pessimist in short little windows, but you can't do it as like a as a long term. You know, always being a pessimist. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe there's somebody mm-hmm. who can prove me wrong, but I, you're not I, very fun to be around either. When you're not very happy either. No, it's depressing. People do business with people they like. People hang out with people they like. So life is definitely too short to. And now be, that we have Reddit, baby, if you're going to be a public <laughs> pessimist, be ready. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so so then what what so April, May, June you start to realize that, okay, so people are still paying our rent. Actually, we're in higher demand. E-commerce is looking amazing. Like we got some huge tailwinds. What the hell do we do now? Yeah. So 400 commercial tenants, we gave 11 rent relief requests. Um, and all of them were paid back pretty quickly. It, it was by about June that we realized that things, like we started to kind of get our feet underneath us. We kind of, mm-hmm. bankers were wanting to talk about industrial. Equity was wanting to talk mm-hmm. about industrial. The media was hot on industrial. Um, so we ended up going under the only con- thing that did better than industrial self storage, my man. That's it, and maybe multi. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know, but um, yeah. Look, at the end of the day, America. Like in your case, uh, we're great at consuming stuff. Uh, if you've ever listened to the George <laughs> Carlin uh, thing on stuff, it's like we buy bigger yeah, houses gotta- just to put more stuff. in Where them. are we gonna put our stuff? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I gotta get a storage unit to put my stuff in that. Like Americans just get all this stuff. Um, yeah. So we went under contract in March. We ended up picking a buyer. They dropped it. Uh, it we actually ended up selling to them. Um, 
but it was just kind of a like a downer. Um, it was it was just tough. And then by July, it was kind of clear that how things are starting to orient. And we ended up going back to that buyer and worked out a deal and closed in October. But I will tell you how I felt in February, how I felt in March, even if you had told me that what happened last year, I think anybody on this planet that thinks we would be where we are today a year ago uh, is not telling the like it's it, the last year has just been the craziest. Mm-hmm. I still don't fully wrap my mind around it. And depending on where you are in the country or the world, you think differently about the situation. Depending on what industry are you're in, you think differently. It's just been a tough world. But long story short, industrial has been a positive note. Um, we've been mm-hmm. fortunate in that regard. Do, do you feel like you've got a price similar to what you were going to get without COVID? It's higher. Really? So it was, it was a blessing. Yeah, because guess what happened in all that period? Interest rates went down. Mm-hmm. Capital stayed on the sidelines. All mm-hmm. the, you know, the way institutions work, the majority of them, you think about like CalPERS. Let's just say they have, I'm just picking a random number, 10 billion bucks a year that they're going to invest. Okay, we're in real estate. We're going to give a billion to retail, a billion for hotels, mm-hmm. a billion for mall. Well, all that capital and institutions, again, they're kind of backwards too. They don't invest in things at the time they should, and they over-allocate to them probably at the times they shouldn't. That's just kind of how things mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Well, all the money that was supposed to be going into hotels and retail and, and all these other asset classes, they had to find a home. You know, the, the list these, got dwindled down to about five asset classes. These pensions like. and nonprofits aren't given the liberty to not deploy their capital. They have mm-hmm. to generate returns. That's mm-hmm. why they exist. They have teachers that are retiring every year that need like it's not, hey, let's just sit on the sideline for five years and wait for something to bet on. Mm-hmm. So what you had was uh the the capital markets on the debt side were more favorable terms. You had data mm-hmm. of, of three to four months that industrial was actually getting better, not worse. Because mm-hmm. of COVID. And then you had this abundance of equity capital that had to go somewhere. And for the big boys, it was going to go into either multi, self-storage, industrial, maybe data centers. Mm-hmm. And so you just kind of had these forces at, at bay and it, it made the asset even more. And then we had data that over you know our COVID um, performance was like we, we beat even the performance we had set pre-COVID during COVID. Um, so that worked in our favor. But I would have never guessed that. Yeah. Gosh. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the the process for raising money for you. You send out an email. And this is where we can talk about Juniper. They sponsored this. They, they uh, paid the fees for us to get this Zoom webinar so they could be featured. I want to talk about Juniper Square. I'm about to switch to Juniper Square. You send an email out at like 10 a.m. And then it all happens automatically. How, how does tell, tell me a little bit about the process behind the scenes of when you guys are releasing, you're about to buy a property, you get the deal all prepped, you have your pro formas, you have your contracts, you send it out. And it seems like an hour later, you tweet that the deal is full. And if you missed that and you were, you were doing something for your phone addiction, you went on a walk that day, you missed, you missed out. So first off is um, <clears throat> we put a ton of attention on the investor and the investor experience. That is a huge part of how we think about the business. So if you think about like how Jeff Bezos talks about customer obsessed. I think about our first customer as our investor. And then you could easily say like, yeah, but what about your tenants? Well, those are customers mm-hmm. too, but it's kind of two different worlds. Real estate's really expensive. So you can have all the ideas in the world, but if you can't fund them, then you can't mm-hmm. fund them. And it's our so, lifeblood. It's our, it's our lifeblood. 
And so mm-hmm. on one end, we have hundreds of investors that are in our database. Uh, we have hundreds that have invested with us on lots of deals. So they know how we operate. They trust us. They know how things work. Um, again, going back to what I just said, industrial's hot. Uh, mm-hmm. People are starved for yield right now. People want to put their money into hard assets as inflation's coming, as they look for yield, as they look for something maybe a little safer. Obviously, you could mm-hmm. point to the, the stock market right now and say, yeah, you could probably do better at any point in time in the stock market. But you know, a lot of people want security, and I think real estate is showing that. And then on top of that, we're in Texas, so I can speak to Texas, uh, probably the fastest growing state in the country. Um, mm-hmm. Great mm-hmm. business climate, great people, a um, lot of room for real estate, companies moving here left and right. Um, and so you, you have all those dynamics. Um but yeah, we send out deals and they've been just filling up really quick. Now we're not raising a hundred million bucks at a time, but I think we've had three raises this year, five million, five million, and two and a half million, and each of them have been done in under ninety minutes. Um, <laughs> and how does Juniper do it? Tell tell me about Juniper. It, it is a software that allows people to basically log in, look at the deal, fund the deal, get the distributions through Juniper, so that you can not have to run this whole thing through email when you're trying to raise the money. Yeah, Juniper is incredible. So everybody has their own login. So once you're with us, you have your own portal that you can log into. You get a deal that comes into your inbox. It says, hey, Fort Capital has an investment. Juniper gives you the ability to click on a data room, uh, click a link. You go into a data room. They can look at the deal. They can approve the deal there and tell us how much they're going to commit. It allows us to communicate back and forth with the investors. So we're not sending individual emails to each investor. We're sending one email, but Juniper allows you to create to where it's it's like, dear Jim, like it'll just insert Mm -hmm. that person's name so we can type Mm -hmm. it once and send it 40 times. Um, Mm -hmm. Then the whole time we're communicating from start to close, we're updating that person's data room and portal. Once it's time for documents to be signed, it's sent to them in DocuSign format. They can look at it, sign it right there. It all gets uploaded into their portal. So any mm-hmm. we have investors that are in 20 deals with us. They can go into their portal anytime and see property performance when we're reporting. They can see every document they've ever signed. And another important thing is every email that we send gets logged in their portal. So Every email we've ever sent an investor, they could never say, oh, I can't find it in my email. Nope, it's right here. So you mm-hmm. click on that entity. We sent that distribution in March of 2021 or whatever. Um, Gosh, so just organization is tight and people, yeah, people love that. Like here's, here's like something I think everybody can wrap their minds around. There's just like, I always go back to this example and maybe it's not a great example, but it was mind blowing to me. We had like 200 investors and some of them were in 15 deals. Well, when you're getting K1s, you're getting them like your CPA is sending them to you in PDF format. Got to like download them into each person's file. Mm-hmm. Then you got to email mm-hmm. those That's people. That's what I'm doing right now. Welcome to my life. So doing Juniper just right said, now, trying to finish it out. Juniper said, hey, uh, we'll develop this thing. Tell your CPA just to title the K1s by the name that they're titled within Juniper. So now we just get this huge batch of K1s. We upload them. Juniper automatically assigns them to that person's account. And if there's any discrepancy, we can clear that up. 
And then it sends an automated email to the investor saying, hey, your K-1s are in your portal, you're done. Like literally what took two or three weeks takes like an hour. Um, <laughs> and managing investors yeah. is can be a lot. And so- It's and, a ton, man. You got all these emails flying around. You got to keep track of them. You, you get these leads and Twitter DMs or wherever folks that want to invest with you. You're trying to organize them, take notes on all these people, you know, set up follow-up calls when they want to talk. It's uh it's overwhelming. And I'll tell you that from firsthand. But somebody asks, is it is it Juniper Capital Corporation? No, it's called Juniper Square. It's a software called Juniper Square that syndicators like Chris and I use to make our life easier. The only other things. thing I would say to that, and this is the case with all SaaS software, I can talk about how great Juniper Square is all day the team that you have operating it matters. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. we have two incredible people that kind of live in Juniper Square. They run it. Um, and so what I would tell anybody, it's just like anything, the team that you have to operate it is more important than the software itself. And so while Juniper is incredible, if you're going to do this, really take a note of um, who on your team is going to own that software because if somebody owns it and gets really good at it, it's just a magical thing. And that's not just for Juniper. That's for a lot of the things that we use. But I encourage anybody to think about how much effort they're going to put into it. Because I will tell you, we uncover things about Juniper all the time that make it just better and better. And our investors give us that feedback all the time. Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't mm -hmm. change it for the world. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on Juniper. Okay. Love it, man. All right. So let's talk a little bit about how you structure these deals. People want to know um, how, how you're building out this portfolio with some of your own cash, also some investor cash. Give us the basic waterfall outline of how, how it looks for you. Yep. Um, so we do typical... We kind of have two structures. We have a pref model with a split. So um, anywhere from a six to an eight pref. So what that means is if you give me $100,000 and it's an eight pref, the first $8,000 out a year is paying you your return. I've no I've not paid you back any of your original principal. I'm just paying you return. And then the split is once I've paid you your return plus your initial capital back, every remaining dollar is split anywhere from 60/40 to 70/30. Mm -hmm. We also offer a product that's it's it, it functions like high yield debt. It's called Mez. It's it's actually equity. It sits at the front of the stack. Mm -hmm. It is 10% paid current. Uh, with no upside. So you get your money plus 10%. We distribute mm -hmm. monthly. So if you gave us money on January 1st, you'd get your first distribution check February 1st. Um, and then we have a second model, which is for longer term holds. And that is just like 80-20 day one, no pref. So all cash flows are split 80-20 day one. We had a lot of, of our family office and, and kind of high net worth investors come to us and say, look, we want you to start holding assets for seven to 10 years. And I said, that's great. But when you have a pref model and a split mm -hmm. model, it's incentivizing yeah. short-term decisions. It's in, mm -hmm. the, the GP wants, it ain't making a dime until they get all this money back. So what you see is deals transact a lot more because of structures like that. So we mm -hmm. said, look, 80-20 day one, there's no hurdle we're trying to overcome. Um, and we'll only do the things, we'll spend the time that make the asset more valuable. Um, but if we hit a downturn where you see a lot of investors shed assets or sell assets is when GPs, there's a downturn, they don't see a horizon where they're going to get to their promote maybe ever. And so they just sell the asset. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily aligned with LP interests. That could be an asset that's going to recover over time. 
but they sell because there's nothing in it for them anymore. In that 80-20 model, at the bottom of the market, I'm still getting 20% of the cash flow. Like I'm at, I'm more incentivized to get that thing going again. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just human nature. And so we kind of threw that structure out. People loved it. And those are kind of the two structures that we have stuck to. I love it. All right. So I like to... Everybody talks about real estate as a passive deal. I mean, you make it sound easy to go around and buy industrial real estate. I make it sound easy on Twitter to go around and buy self-storage facilities. But in reality, this is a small business. This is operations. This is marketing. This is the blocking and tackling. Um, what are your thoughts around how to run the small business and how to get a competitive advantage? I'm, I'm of the camp that it's really, really hard to buy real estate right now unless you have a competitive advantage. If you're not doing something different from other people, you're not going to get yield because there's just too much cash looking to be parked in American real estate right now. What are your thoughts around your competitive advantage, advice for operators, anything along those lines of like, hey, how can we generate yield in this world where everybody's overpaying for everything and we can't find any deals? Yeah. So the further you move up chain, just like anything, you got to be in the game. And so if everybody in town knows that you're a you know, you're somebody that's doing this consistently, you're going to get more looks than people just by being in the game. Um, and that's mm-hmm. look, if it, that's not to discourage anybody that's just getting started, but it's why if somebody were to try and you know move to Fort Worth tomorrow and buy an industrial building, I probably have an advantage just because I've been here longer, I know more people, etc. Uh, two, you know, this is so true for every industry, not just real estate, but cold calling and talking to people off market is a huge advantage, and a lot of people just simply won't do it. A lot of assets are bought by waiting for it to come online, making a bid, uh, or participating in an auction and making a bid. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, if you're going to bid against 50 other people and you're going to win, unless you have some crazy strategy that's so different from the other 49 people or 49 groups, you're just kind of manufacturing a return. You're not really generating alpha by any means. Um, And look, again, there's nothing wrong with that. It just kind of is what it is. Uh, what I think we've done, interestingly enough, that's starting to really pan out is um, we have two things that are interesting. One, um, I don't think this is a novel idea, and I think a lot of people have it, but I don't think a lot of people use it as much as they could. We have a broker incentive program. So if you bring us a deal, we'll pay you an extra half a point to a point, depending on uh, who else is involved. We'll allow you to invest your LP capital and we'll give you a few points of the promote. So we treat you like a partner. This is for brokers listing deals? This is for any broker that brings us a deal off market that we are the only person that has a look at the time. So a true off market deal. Wow. So you you give you give these brokers a little bit of extra commission. You let them in on we give them the option. They don't have to. They don't. Well, they don't have to participate as an LP, and then we give them promotes of the deal. Wow, that's that's epic. Does it work? Oh my gosh, it does. And (laughs) and you you can't go build that relationship with a hundred brokers, but you can with four or five in each market. And what we do in return is we supply them with information on buildings that we're interested in, uh, we Mm -hmm. areas that we're interested in. Um, and the second thing we've done, which is I kind of um, I got a shout out to, to Brent Bashor uh, from Permanent Equity, is we've created, um, similar to what he's done with Scout, we've created kind of an acquisition consultant. So we've also created an online portal that makes it super easy for anybody. You don't even have to be in real estate. You just have to be able to pick up the phone and, and call people. 
that if you can generate a lead, it's a portal for how they can submit a deal to us. So they have they can't just send us an address. They have to send us, they basically fill out a two-page model that we've pre-templated. They have to answer like 40 or 50 things about the property. They have to do all these things, but the way it gets generated to us is basically an investment committee memo. And so what we're trying to do is say, look, there's all these people in the world that know somebody that wants to sell a building. How do we create more deal flow um, from from not just people even in the real estate industry? I think one of the things that's broken about the model of real estate is you get bigger and you just hire all these acquisition people. And look, they're great and they 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 hit their their goals and it's great for the company, but also creates kind of a bottleneck for the company. Like your deal flow is limited to what those folks can bring. And right now we have no true acquisition people on our team. We just are now working with broker partners and we're working with these acquisition consultants. And I would tell you our deal flow has never been more than it is now. Um, oh my gosh, wow. Yeah. And so <laughs> we try and buy, everything we buy is off market. And off market to us means uh, it's not obviously openly listed. And two, when we're bidding on it, it's, uh, it's a one-on-one negotiation or maybe there's another person that knows about it. But we are never participating in kind of these auction processes. Uh, it's just not what we're at, what we're trying to do. Well, it's not how you get yield. <laughs> There's always somebody willing to take less yield than you. Correct. And, and at the, how, at the how, level you, that we're... What do you pl- give to... What, what advice do you give to somebody who doesn't have this big flywheel that you have built though? You've built a company that's been doing this now more and more every single year. You have the resume. They've, the brokers have sold things to you in the past. They're looking at your portfolio. Uh, I guess you just got to get resourceful and get creative. Well, so is your question... What for people you, who for people who are in the earlier days, um, maybe me. Like I, I have we bought one building from one broker. The rest have been off market. We have several more in the pipeline with the same broker. But I mean, I can't. My, I'm not a big enough deal in my area, and I'm working on too wide of a footprint to implement a lot of these strategies. It's tough. Yeah, I would say um, th- that's the other part about like, and I've talked about this in podcasts and and some of the other things. It's important to be relevant in the market that you're in. And so I've had a lot of people reach out to me and they're like, I'm trying to buy my first property and I'm going to buy it in like another state. And my usual advice is like, why are you doing that? Um, Mm -hmm. You don't know anybody there. Like, yeah, you read the data and it's good. And I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm just saying uh, it's important to be relevant in business. No matter, it's important to be relevant, period. And if you're trying to accomplish something. And so what I would tell anybody is, if you're just getting into it, one, if you're just getting into it and you're looking for your first deal and really all you have to do is find that one deal, it's actually a little bit liberating. I'm in the capital mm-hmm. deployment business. It's easy mm-hmm. for everybody that invests capital to sit here and say, I'm going to, you know, when things are tough, I'm just going to sit on my ass for five years and never pull the trigger on anything and just wait for the perfect moment. Well, you can do that if you're in certain spots in your life, but we're in the business of making great decisions in the market that we're in. Will mm-hmm. I ever buy something that I buy for more than maybe it's going to be worth a year from now? Sure. But if I'm doing it right, it shouldn't cripple me and I should be able to come out of it. But that day will come and anybody that says that it won't is just like living in fantasy land. At the mm-hmm. same time, we're not built as a company to just say, well, candidly, let me take a step back. We are at a company, we are at a spot now where all of our overhead, all of my people, 
everything is covered by the fees that we generate from the portfolio that we have. So we don't technically have to do anything. You can feed all 25 people on your AUM fees and your management fees. That's taken forever. And that's very Mm -hmm. hard to do. And it's something I'm really proud of. But I think people get enamored with this idea that when they're ready to turn off the switch, they're just not going to do anything. And 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 um, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. I think, when, and, and back to your question, when you're only just trying to find one deal, it's I think it can be more liberating because you don't have all this pressure. You're kind of getting your feet wet for the first time. You don't have all this other stuff going on that you have to tend to. But the way that we think about it is we have to stay relevant. And to stay relevant, you have to stay active, whatever that mm-hmm. means. Um, you know, being someone that they know is going to buy for a year and then you're not going to hear from them for eight years, like maybe you're relevant then, but you're not relevant kind of long term. And so I, I think I'm kind of, I don't know if I'm giving a direct answer. Is just, I think my answer is just like be really relevant and build relationships with the people that are around the deals. Um, and again, it's just like in anything, it's not just real estate. If you're starting tomorrow, don't expect to have great relationships by day two. That's part of the mm-hmm. work. I my takeaway, my takeaway from that is hey, Chris, Chris has a problem. Chris has a problem in that if his company doesn't buy $150 million of real estate this year, it's a bad year. It is. <laughs> so you got some pressure. It is. And Anybody sitting here going, well, the the market could be overheated. Maybe he shouldn't buy anything this year. (laughs) Um, I think there's been a lot of people saying that for the last five years. And what I've really learned, and look, it's how you want to position your business and to be fortunate enough to be in the situation where you could have done nothing for the last five years and still done a great, you know, worked out um, great, but not everybody's in that position and especially a smaller middle market company, like you have to have something going on uh, most mm-hmm. of the time. And so the key is not putting so much pressure that you make bad investment decisions, but knowing where you are in the market. Look, we deploy capital. Um, the, the, the good news for anybody is I put a lot of my own money into every deal. I sign on the banknotes of every deal. Again, I have a reputation that I want to withhold. So we're not just floundering and buying but we're also super niche. That's what I love about what you're doing, Nick. You are staying so focused on self-storage, industrial, and tertiary markets. You know that better than anybody. Where I would start getting worried is if you sent me a multifamily deal and then maybe a retail deal. And then that's where I start going, okay, he's not so dialed in and tuned in to the nuances of this asset in this market at this time. And that's where I think you can start getting in trouble. Um, Mm -hmm. So... I, I love think it. I answered I love your it. question. Yeah, it's, an, it's a it's a double-edged sword, right? The flywheel helps you in a lot of ways and it also adds a lot of pressure, a lot of risks to where Chris Powers is a made man who's trembling in his shoes on, on March 30th. Yep. <laughs> How's Twitter changed your life, man? Last question here. We'll wrap it up. Um, what are you thinking about Twitter right now? I'm, I'm six months into my journey of it really supercharging things and there's things I love about it and things that are uh, a struggle. What about you? It's changed my life. Uh, that sounds like cheesy. Um, not changed my yeah, you life. Hear people, you hear people talk about social media in these podcasts and webinars, and maybe it's different for us since we have a following now and we're meeting people there, but it really is changing my entire world. It is. I'm with you. I think the way you know I've just thought about it is like, you always want to be in the room, right? Well, now the room's just bigger. 
And but it, with a bigger room comes more responsibility and maybe more challenges. But what I would tell you is it's changed my life, one, in that I've met incredible people all over the country that I would have never met. It's changed our mm-hmm. business because we've met new investors. We've seen deals. We've met cool people. Um, but I think there's a change happening even in society right now where it's like it used to be the only people that should be on social media during work were like the marketing team. Mm-hmm. And now I would tell you if you're uh, if you're not using social media to to your advantage and, and meeting people and growing your brand through it, you're you're not thinking about it right. And I think I think of Twitter. I don't want to say I think of it as like my job or as work, but if I'm on Twitter for two hours during my work day, I used to kind of feel guilty about that. Now I'm starting to see it as maybe my best time spent of the week. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From a, I'm learning a ton. Um, I think mm-hmm. the downsides to uh, Twitter and other things are if you're not cautious, you don't know what you're about to get into. You could pick up your phone, be in a great mood, and two minutes later be pissed off, think the world's on fire. Um, it's not. It's a great world. Um, I think, it. you know, we talk about that insecurity that we get. I mean, I'm sitting here in a room trying to underwrite a deal. I'm looking at the model. I'm trying to guess what the hell's going on. I get done with it. I'm not sure. How can how can Nick be sure what's going to happen here? I don't know. Is my you know am I thinking about things the right way? Am I going crazy? Um, you post on Twitter, you start to learn in public, and at least this has been my experience. And I, it, it amps up my confidence when I get feedback from people who maybe they're telling me that I'm full of shit, and I'm looking at that, I'm reading that. Maybe they're telling me that I'm onto something. Maybe they're asking me really good questions. But either way, it's not just me in a room thinking about my business. When you're growing in public, you have that soundboard of people that that's what's helped me the most. I feel like I am the one that is learning the most. Yes, I'm on Twitter as a teacher, but I'm the one that's learning the most on I Twitter. I think about the same exact way. I, I, you, you do a good job of maybe not, I wouldn't say putting the wrong answer. You will say things in a way that elicit a lot of response. And you and I have talked about this. You're doing it to get the response. You're not posting to be right. You're actually doing it to be wrong and get the real response. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. I tell people about Twitter all the time. I think it's the most underserved resource on the internet. I mean, yeah, it's been around for twelve years and everybody knows about it. But I feel like it's like it's having this rebirth right now. I mean, look, look what we're doing in October at Reconvene. Moses is putting on this incredible uh, opportunity for five hundred people to go out to LA and get to know each other for the first time. I think we've joked about it, but some of my, you know, feel like some of my best friends now I've actually never met in person. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the world we're in. I don't think that's a moment in time. I think we're headed in that path and have been for a while. And if you embrace it and you're cautious and, you know, I block a lot of things, I mute a lot of words I don't want to see. But mm-hmm. but Twitter is relatively a, a pleasant place because I can't see the noise. I've, I've done a good job of guarding myself from that. Um, some people mm-hmm. might see that as I'm closed-minded. But um, I think... If you use it the wrong way, it could it can certainly be damaging as well. Um, but it's mm-hmm. it's certainly been a positive, and yeah, um, I plan on using it a lot more. Yeah, it's crazy. I didn't even know, haven't even really paid attention to March Madness for the first time in my life. I haven't flipped on one game, and I couldn't even tell you what the heck's going on. I'm kind of pumped about that. I would say one more thing on your question about real estate, and then we can take some questions from the the crowd. Um, especially if you're just getting started. There's a wonderful life to live being a small business that makes a few investments a year, and that's it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, 
I've, I've sometimes you go through this process when you're building a business where you you can it's easy to look and do math and be like, man, I would have made more money had I just stayed by myself and done two deals a year than decided to hire 15 people and do lots more deals. That's what's called the messy middle. When you come out the other side of the messy middle and the platform's built and you can scale, that's where you really start to see the lift. I think where a lot of people get not enamored is kind of that messy middle of I'm a one or two person company doing really well doing deals to I got to get to 20, you know, whatever, a bigger company doing lots of deals. And if you're looking at every year along the way is like, man, I just could have made more as a smaller company. It can it can be disenchanting. What I would tell you is if you put in the work, build the processes, the systems, build the machine. Um, and treat people really well. The other side of it is where you can really start hitting scale. You can really start hiring talented folks. You can start doing a lot more things. But look, it's hard. It's been five or six years of of a lot of work of what I would call being in that messy period. Um, Do you have any regrets during that time? Oh, I have. I have. I don't know if there are regrets. I have tons of failures. I have tons of things that I probably didn't do right, but. You know, not to use like some cliche comment. I don't. I'm not somebody that dwells on failure for too long. I usually just kind of mm-hmm. learn from it and move on. Um, but I would tell you that knowing what you want to be is important. I didn't necessarily know I want. All I knew is that I wanted something big, but I didn't really. I wasn't thoughtful in kind of knowing what the steps were. And I think there's a lot of people that don't know what they're getting into. What they do is they go buy four or five deals and then they hire someone, do a couple more, hire someone. And they're like frantically trying to survive when they've been doing what they wanted to do, which was buy deals, but they haven't built the infrastructure to manage them all. Because the more deals you buy, you got to execute them. And the more Mm -hmm. time you're spent executing them and dealing with people and HR issues and things like that is less time that you're spending finding deals, raising capital. And so there just comes this point where you kind of got to pick what you want to be. I mean, at one point I was doing my accounting on Sunday evenings in QuickBooks. I had no employees. How long ago was that? uh, Nine or 10 years ago. Okay. Okay. Maybe 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. I did all my accounting for a long time. Um, That's a whole different story. But uh, uh, anyway, now we have have acquisitions people. We have analysts. We have a finance team. We have 40-something loans. That's a whole team out of itself. We have, uh, I think we have eight accounting people, four here domestically and four in India. We have... Uh, two people on our marketing team. We have, I mean, property management, construct. All these teams start getting built that are doing any one thing. And as I sit here today, I don't do any one of those things. I'm a cheerleader for all those teams. I have um, interest in those, but um, I knew I knew I didn't want to be a one or two person company and I was willing to go through it. I think people need to make more of a conscious decision of who they're trying to be and stick to it. Um, because mm-hmm. you're, if you if you want to be small and you do that extra two or three deals, you might just accidentally become larger and not know it. And being larger doesn't mean being happier or better or whatever. Li- being larger could not be the thing you want. Um, I don't yeah, know. we're sneaking up on seven employees really quick here. It happens yeah, to quick execute, to execute the deals. Um, it it takes a lot of work, overhead, risk. What's, what's your opinion on crowdfunding real estate, for example, fundrise to people? People ask me that a lot too, Chris. I don't know. I'm, I'm so really bullish looked. on it. You like it. Tell me why. Well, we're, we're 10 to 12 years into it. Uh, you know, it's just like everything. Like Bitcoin was like, 
Uh, it's like this isn't real. It's a it's it's not going to be great. Everything that's new is weird. Then it goes through this down period where it's filled with doubters, and then it comes out the other side. Crowdfunding has been weird and doubted. It's gone through its down where this isn't great. You, you don't see good deals, and now it's the democratization of capital. I'm seeing great uh, sponsors and operators crowdfunding now. People that I would have really? never imagined four or five years ago would be raising capital. They're raising very large sums. And for an LP, it's getting, one, they're getting access to better operators and better deals, but they're getting access. I think the thing that I'm interested in, why we're long and bullish on syndication and working with lots of investors rather than just one investor is this kind of this democratization of capital. The internet has made it to where people have access and knowledge and um, I just think that trend is going to accelerate. And so I don't, I can't sit here and pick, is it Fundrise or CrowdStreet or Real Crowd or Cadre, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which one's going to win? I would just say that as the days go by, they're becoming more trusted, they're becoming more legit. And I don't think like we're headed the other direction. We've already been through kind of the, is crowdfunding going to be a thing mm-hmm. few year stretch? Now yeah, it's, it's got the... It's got the resume of or the reputation of these guys can't must not be able to raise money anywhere else if they're posting on CrowdRise or you know I won't name them but I know a buddy of mine that's raised hundreds of millions of dollars of equity always done it from family offices always done it from institutional capital the last sixty million dollars he's raised has been on crowdfunding and it's been good good deals he wouldn't go back oh awesome great to hear are you gonna try it out or? You probably don't, you already have the retail investors. We kind of like, we don't do syndication is its own form of, I guess, what you would call crowdfunding. We would certainly try it out if we couldn't raise the amount of capital that we needed with the investor base that we have. We just don't have that problem right now. So there's really no need Mm -hmm. to to move on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. Any other questions here? You you mentioned uh, transitioning an industrial building into a single family or multifamily property. Yeah, I, I was wondering how the heck you thought that might work. So my tweet, which I think was uh, depends on who read it and how they received it, was not transitioning them or scraping them and then building Class A multifamily complexes. And I spelled hostile wrong. I said hostile. <laughs> I meant to say hostile. Was I am fascinated and I do have a heart for this affordability problem. Um it's becoming more expensive to own or rent anything. And the answers and the solutions to this are so obvious. The problem is we can't get out of our own way. We won't change zoning laws. We make it harder to get developments done so developers aren't taking as much risk. The incentives are not to help um, affordable housing happen. Everybody wants to talk about it and sing kumbaya. The actions are not matching up. So Mm -hmm. I just wrote a, I've been thinking a lot about it and again, kind of like you do, I kind of put out the answer, hoping to see what was going on. And I got a lot of response. But you have all these huge, uh, you go all over the world and you see hostels, kind of these dorm rooms in the army, you sleep in a bunk bed, you have your locker, mm-hmm. you have kind of common amenities. And so my thought was you have these industrial buildings that come with tons of parking, tons of open flat, they're flat. So tons of open flat space. You could put a basketball court out in the parking lot. You could put, you know, washer pit. Mm -hmm. You could make it very kind of, you know, do some nice amenities. But then you could just have these really kind of uh, like these bunk rooms, basically. And, 
yeah, maybe it doesn't solve the problem for everybody. But if all you needed to rent was like a bunk bed and you had these huge warehouses where they're kind of built to be like big bunk rooms and you kind of mm-hmm. put your own spin on them, you There's know, a certain amount of the population that would that would eat that up. Correct. Love it. And you don't have mm-hmm. to put a ton of money into you just have to make sure it's air conditioning, has enough bathrooms and plumbing, plenty of mm-hmm. places to park. And look, this isn't going to be the Taj Mahal, but we're. Mm-hmm. It's at least a start. And I know it's not the street. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not going to happen. In a, and everybody, like a lot of the naysayers were saying, like, well, these big class A facilities, like, no, but like they're such a higher and better use. Like, yeah, I'm not really thinking about those. And these could be old buildings on the outskirts of town, but it's a start and a model to maybe bring like a hostile style model to at least do something. Cause I don't see many other solutions. I was in LA a year and a half ago for a conference for YPO. It cost, $650,000 a door to build affordable housing right now in California. Oh my goodness. $650,000 a door. Part of that, that is because the government mandates for building an affordable housing unit, they're nicer than the stuff that you see that people own privately. Like it's got to have, I mean, I was looking at these units going, these are damn near <laughs> class A multifamily units that they're pseudo making affordable. And it's because government puts all these <laughs> regulations in place. Yeah, that's nuts, man. It's nuts. Anything else you got, man? Let's wrap it up. I think this has been a huge success. I was looking at the participants. We had 450 people for like the first half, which that's is awesome. a phenomenal engagement. I was hoping for 100, which is... Uh, this has been great. I think we got to do this more Let's often. take like one more, two more questions. All right. Let's see what either of you consider... Uh, Bitcoin is a reserve. Um, probably not right now. Me at least. I don't know enough about some Bitcoin. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't sit here to say like I know a ton about Bitcoin. All I would say is in the time I've, you know, the short business career I've had, when a lot of smart people and a lot of money is being poured into an idea, it tends to like get legs. And mm-hmm. the smartest people in the world are working on crypto. This the money that's pouring into Bitcoin is huge. I don't sit here saying I know what it means, but I do know what it means with lots of smart people and lots of money start chasing one thing and have been for since 2010 now. We're 11 years into Bitcoin and every year it's supposed to have gone away. And if Pomp, if you're on here, big fan, (laughs) um, but I tend to agree. Like, I don't know what Pomp knows about Bitcoin. I don't say to do it, but I do know that there's just a lot of smart people in it and it would just be stupid not to have a tiny bit of your net worth or investable assets in it. Um, don't put enough that it could take you down, but that's asymmetric bet. It's something that maybe not now, but at the time could have a hundred X upside and your downside was you lost what you put into it. That seemed like a pretty good opportunity to me. One guy says, I know Chris has talked a lot about contentment and the key to happiness, but also that growth and contentment don't coexist. How do both of you balance ambition and pushing for what's next versus contentment? And I think I'll answer first for me, it's, you know, I sleep well at night and I'm having fun when I feel like I'm accomplishing something. If I was on a 24 hour a day, seven day a week, 365 day a year vacation, I'd be pretty miserable pretty quick. I think the work and the suffering and the hard parts of life are what make the, the joyous parts of life even more fun. Um, kids amplify that for sure because it amplifies the highs, amplifies the lows. But yeah, business is the same way. If you didn't fail and you didn't have those fears and you didn't have that insecurities, it wouldn't be so fun when you hit, when you hit and you win. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I kind of was saying it earlier is like I fail at it miserably. I think the biggest breakthrough I can say with it that I think about is when I'm not happy or I'm not in a good spot, I can at least I'm now at a point where I can go, well, am I content right now? And the answer is always basically no. And then I can go, well, why am I not content? Oh, I'm not content because, you know, I'm trying to keep up with the Joneses or because I, I'm so stressed out about this next deal. It just is a good way to at least put things into perspective and kind of settle myself down. Whereas for years on end, I think a lot of people never realize why they aren't content. And it's, you know, not trying to make a, you know, kind of, uh, I'm not trying to make this like political, but I think about like this cancel culture stuff. That is just not content. Now, look, they're canceling things that are probably need to be, you know, they're, they're not great. But I don't, it, it's coming from this desire to not be, con, uh, of not being content with something. And so we go after Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss and this and this. And mm-hmm. it is, we are living in a world right now where it's harder to be content. We're getting on our phones six hours a day. We're seeing everybody that's on a great vacation or just, you know, made some money or just did this or you know, you live 50 years ago, you woke up, you like read the newspaper for 10 minutes, you went and like did about your day. And that was kind of it. Now you like, for six hours a day, you are like one click away from possibly being not content, seeing that your friend just won a, you know, something, I don't even know. But the world that is now designed around us to not be content. That's what makes us buy things. That's what makes us do things. And so, look, I failed at it miserably. I think the only thing I can say positively about it is being able to to ask yourself, am I content right now? And when the answer is no, at least being going, well, that's why I'm not that happy right now. Doesn't mean you Mm -hmm. can solve it in a second, but you can diagnose it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think we're good, man. Unless you want to talk about anything else before we head out of here. No. This was awesome, Chris. This was great. Amazingly valuable. Thank you, everybody that um, logged on. This is this is really cool, and it's cool that we like again. We're in 2021, where 450 people could get together relatively for free, hang out, share knowledge. Uh, is everything we said right? No. Did it give something somebody to think about? Maybe if it changed somebody's day, great. But you could have never done this. Like even 10 years ago, you couldn't have done this. Um, the world the world just- has changed a lot in the last 10 months. And entrepreneurs are eating this up. This is the best time ever to start a business, not because capital's flush, not because um, everybody's cooped up and the world is about to explode and interest rates are low. This is the best time ever to start a business because the world is changing very, very fast. It is. Um, I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning an insane about amount about myself, about business, about real estate. Um, and yeah, it's it's special. It's a special thing, Chris. I'm very, very thankful to have you as a mentor and. Uh, feeling the need to lift me up, man, and and help me achieve when you don't have to do that. It Dude, help you monetarily to do that. Same thing. I mean, look, we've become great friends through Twitter. Uh, I talk to you probably once a week. I don't talk to several of my friends here once a week anymore. Not that I don't want to, but that's just the world we live in. You, I've, I'm now connected to other people. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been a pleasure. I know we're just getting started. We got a good 50 years in front of us. And uh, yeah, it's... It, it's no more exciting time to be alive than this moment right now. I'm fired up. I'm ready to go kick some ass. All right, dude, let's go make it happen. See you later, buddy. Thank you. Thank you.